But I remember I just wanted to create a simple web page that used React components. In particular, I was trying to build the web page that said, welcome to our company, leave your email to get started. And I noticed that like all that infrastructure was a pain to set up. Like you had to configure Webpack. You had to like basically spend all this time just working on the meta problem instead of just your UI and your brand, the cool stuff that you want to share with customers. It's a very simple contract of you can get started with no configuration and there is one command to develop and one command to build and one command to run the entire thing on your machine. My name is Guillermo Rauch and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vercel. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Guillermo Roche combined the best developer experience with obsessive focus on front-end performance. All this and more on Code Story. Guillermo Roche is originally from Argentina. He's always been involved in the open source world, starting out working in Linux and native tooling. After a while, he fell in love with the web and the front-end system, working in the early days of Ajax, JS Animation, and jQuery competition. When I asked him what he does for fun, he laughed, because he really enjoys what he does professionally on the web. On a personal level, though, he has three kiddos, so he stays pretty busy. He's into fitness and does calisthenics and gymnastics. Beyond that, he is into coffee, though I don't know many tech people who aren't into coffee. Having been a JS person, he saw an opportunity to build out the front-end layer of the web. To put that in context, think about what Stripe, Twilio, etc. have done for the industry with their foundational developer-first APIs. He decided to create a framework that had no opinion about how you got your data. And alongside of this, he created the optimal ecosystem for developers to build very fast. Specifically, to develop, preview, and ship. This is the creation story of Next.js and Vercel. Vercel is a developer platform for front-end teams. And our intent is to give you all the tools necessary for you, your team, your company to succeed on the web. We have this life cycle that we call develop, preview, ship. Develop, you can use any modern front-end framework to develop on our platform, but we create Next.js, which is a React-based framework. We like to think of it as the SDK or, or the missing SDK for the web. Just like every other ecosystem like Android or iOS have their SDK built in, we want to perfect this blend of opinionation and minimalism in an SDK that we can give all developers in the world for free and is completely open source. So Next.js turns React into a technology that you can use to build pages and websites and web applications. It's very ergonomic and easy to use. The preview part of our life cycle is that once you push your code, we give you a live URL that you can share and collaborate with, with your team. We think that the best products are built by teams, not just individuals. And we think that the front ecosystem has this amazing advantage that when you push code, it's just much more fun to go to a live URL, and see how it works, experience it, test that it meets the needs of the product managers and your customers, share it with your customers even early on. And then finally, the sort of ship phase of the lifecycle is about delivering your, your application 
to a global edge network that makes your apps really, really snappy for end users. So the way that we think of this as a workflow is that each, each phase should sort of reinforce the last. So when you push your front end, we want you to make sure that it performs great for your end users so that you can you know, run the best possible business or, or, or have the most enjoyable possible application for end users. So we also have an analytics layer that informs the next step of development here. So when you, when you ship your code, we measure it from the perspective of, of your end users and we kind of give you the data that you can use to then develop, then preview, then ship, and make this process just a constant source of, of improvement for your, for your applications. It was really interesting because when I sold my previous company to WordPress, which is another great web platform, having been always a JavaScript person, a front-end person, I saw an opportunity to sort of build out the basically the front-end layer of, of the web because I thought that systems like WordPress, Shopify, Stripe, Twilio, they've done such a fantastic job for the people that are working on the backend. For example, at WordPress, one thing I learned is that our biggest, one of our biggest customers was the person that logs in every day to edit, to review, to write new content, especially at larger companies. I thought it was fantastic. It has an incredible plugin ecosystem. Folks love the editor, the block-based editor of WordPress. But what I was noticing at the time was that there was this trend in the industry toward APIs everything was becoming an API. And I noticed that very early on because I was always interested in how, you know, you can sort of create interesting business models out of developer-first methodology. So for example, Stripe is a great fintech company that started with a great developer API. So I remember actually I was uh, very excited when I was at WordPress that they were starting to merge this plugin into main that was the REST API for WordPress and then a GraphQL API for WordPress developed. So I was noticing that the industry was breaking down that monolithic way of building where, for example, in the case of WordPress, your backend and your theme all live inside the same code base and the same technology with the same tools. And I thought that for the front end, the most interesting tool that you could possibly use was JavaScript, let alone things like React. So I had this idea of creating a framework that made this concept of sort of awesome, super interactive, super fast JavaScript applications a reality. But unlike predecessors like Meteor and other ideas that had been in the JavaScript ecosystem in the past, I decided that by design, this framework was not going to have its own database, its own ORM, its own opinionation about how you would get your data. So it's literally just a front-end layer. The interesting thing that happened early on in the development of this was I noticed that the best possible experience for the front-end developer was going to come from the ability to iterate very fast. So I had this idea that you should just write one command very quickly and then get your page up and running into the cloud. Cloud and framework we're getting closer together. We're starting to merge, so to speak. So I developed Next in parallel with the sort of infrastructure platform that would make Next the best possible framework it could be. And it would also make the front-end developer not have to worry about all these things. Like I remember at the time, uh, even just getting SSL <laughs> up and running for a quick front-end project was a like, tedious task. We developed the framework and the cloud platform in parallel, and that turned out to be one of the biggest strengths of Vercel because, as I mentioned earlier, we give 
uh, enterprises or teams uh, the all the tools that they need to succeed from develop all the way to ship. Let's dive into the MVP then. So that first product you built, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So one of the things that happened in the early days of the React ecosystem was that folks were sort of struggling with the idea of infrastructure, but on the compiler level, on the tooling level. So we had all these cool pieces of software that we could use to like bring a React-based project to fruition. But I remember I just wanted to create a simple web page that used React components. In particular, I was trying to build the web page that said, welcome to our company, leave your email to get started. And I noticed that like all that infrastructure was a pain to set up. Like you had to configure Webpack, you had to like basically spend all this time just working on the meta problem instead of just your UI and your brand, the cool stuff that you want to share with customers. That was our first opportunity it was like, the MVP was this zero config framework. It wasn't all worked out perfectly in the beginning, but what we did have, which we maintain to today, is a very simple contract of, you can get started with no configuration, and there's one command to develop, and one command to build, and one command to run the entire thing on your machine. We are one of the few open source serverless frameworks that can run in its entirety on your local machine or inside a container. The MVP was designed from a contract design type of thing. We knew what the boundaries of the system were, we knew the expectations of the simplicity of the of the ergonomics of the tool. And then we kind of started, you know, we continuously, even until today, continue to improve the internals from those boundaries. And then on the cloud infrastructure side, a very similar thing happened. We knew that we wanted deployment to be as simple as git push or running one command per cell, and then you get a URL. But then we iterated on the infrastructure and we continue to iterate on the infrastructure. We never really stopped changing the internals because we continue to improve them based on what frameworks need and what our customers need. But the boundaries have stayed the same. And one of the reasons that I bet on the web is I remember I was super excited about HTTP2 back then. <laughs> now I'm really excited about HTTP3. I figured that the hyperlink is the right boundary of abstraction for the cloud side. We didn't want a framework that spit out a binary to run in an app store. We wanted the developer to get a URL back from the system. So that is the same contract that remains until today. We just continue to improve the underlying infra. So from that MVP, how did you progress the product and mature it? And, and you know, to, to give context to that question or shape, how did you build your roadmap and figure out, okay, this is the next most important thing to build with Fursell? From the outset, we launched in a very public way and we wanted to get customer feedback as soon as we could. So it was very much built in collaboration with anybody that was interested in building anything with this new JavaScript and React technologies. I think us focusing on a niche in a way, even though that wasn't obvious or 100% conscious to us at the time, we were very focused in our audience. So we leveraged our existing audiences. I think something that was really interesting that we were doing differently at the time was Next.js was very focused on server rendering. I suppose it was almost like a contrarian thing because a lot of the JS ecosystem at the time was excited about single page applications. 
we evolved our framework and infrastructure a lot around what are these folks that are that need server rendering asking us. That ended up being very successful because a lot of the folks that gravitated towards Next are companies that were doing things in e-commerce or companies that wanted really good SEO and the framework just fit really nicely. So being an open source project, the, the roadmap and the issue management and all that is very open. And I think we kind of constantly evolved it based on the feedback of users in the community, uh, either from companies or even folks that were trying out the platform in its early stages to build you know, side projects. So how did you organize that feedback? What was your approach there? So a big part of it in the early days was just, you know, attaining production grade quality. So one of my obsessions for a long time was, you know, I want these tools to scale extremely well from, you know, I have a single page that's on a domain that I'm publishing to something that scales to like billions of pages and the largest websites in the world. And a lot of that was was sort of very conscious and designed from, from the outset. But in the early days, you know, like you, you kind of have to be realistic that there is only so much you can do, especially as a service. So we really worked hard on the fundamentals. How can we make deployment pipeline very reliable and reproducible? How can we make performance very predictable? How can we work up to a point where we can give our customers SLAs rooted in SLOs of availability and performance? So a lot of that was like building a very strong core. In fact, the way that this idea of this strong core, which we used to sort of share a lot internally in the beginning, was we didn't rush to add lots of features. People are surprised sometimes of, of some features that we decide not to include yet. And we tell you, hey, there's a user space solution for this, a user land solution for this. And that had to do with continuing to develop a very strong core and that, in many ways, means saying no to very enticing features. Well, let's switch to team then. So how did you build your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I think one of the most interesting strengths of an open source first organization like ours is that we're able to recruit from folks that are using and or contributing to our software. So I think the vast majority of the initial hires came from that open source ecosystem. Many came from adjacent ecosystems that I had been already a part of, like Mootools, Socket.io, Mongoose, and other projects that I'd been involved with. Many customers came from those ecosystems as well. So that was kind of always the priority is people that value developer experience greatly and are already immersed in the communities in which we develop our software. That makes a ton of sense. That is an interesting, I don't want to say byproduct, but a super interesting strength, maybe byproduct is the right word, of an open source community like that. So let's flip the scalability. And you mentioned wanting to focus on this earlier. So I'm going to ask this as generically as possible because I want to see where you go with it. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Or are you fighting this as Vercel grows and gets traction? I think it's always a combination because the speed at which things grow, there's just so much that's emergent behavior. And in many ways, we design things to have emergent behavior within controlled boundaries. 
I had a customer recently that was bootstrapping an entire payment platform on top of our API functions support in XJS. Could I have anticipated that? No, because you know most of our customers are doing cool things with components and UI and e-commerce, and they tend to use existing platforms for their APIs. However, we knew that with introducing the API route support that under the hood gets deployed as serverless functions, we would give our customers tremendous flexibility and scalability and, and just a lot of dynamic power for, for their projects. So there's always things that are interesting and emergent, but we always wanted to excel at a particular use case. So for us, I was, you know, we, we really leaned toward this. This is going to be the absolute best place to deploy your front end. And we're going to give you the absolute best performance, both for developer and end user. Now, when it comes down to scalability, things that we designed were conscious were, for example, a goal toward team scalability. So NextJS has designed this page system to provide isolations between the sections of your application. Going back to like one of the reasons I never liked the single page application concept was I didn't think it had good team scalability. I didn't think that you could come in to a project, create a new entry point and start adding complexity there that wouldn't add or slow down the rest of the application. It was, it was much harder to do that with a single page application model. So team scalability was built in from day one. We also knew that with how the web works and how much is bound by how fast the initial load time is, which today, this, this concept didn't exist at the time, the web vital largest contentful paint is extremely hard, if not impossible, to get outstanding large contentful paint timings for complex applications without server rendering or pre-rendering in some form or fashion. So we designed Next.js with server rendering with that kind of scalability in mind. We also knew reverse engineering how Google search and Facebook.com work. The common pattern was they both use server rendering at scale. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pick that fight. Like they've tried enough things and they're pressured by billions of dollars a day in advertising or, or other sort of products and services flowing through those platforms to get that text in front of your retina in as few milliseconds as possible. My whole thing was like, let's design a framework that allows customers to get that ambitious with performance. Now, what was emergent was, you know, for example, how fast the traffic on our platform has grown and the number of use cases and frameworks and, and funky things that people try to do with the platform. So with things being so open and growing so fast, there's a lot about scalability that you don't quite anticipate and you just have to adapt and react quickly to the, to the environment. I love what you said about the, uh, the the single page application and it not being scalable for teams. I hadn't really thought about it like that. I've never had a good taste in my mouth for SBAs. I always share an anecdote that I got from an, an engineering manager at a very famous shoe company where they said, the thing that we like the most about Next is that we onboard a developer. They open that page's directory and they already learned the structure of our application. They can visit in their code editor, the different pages and sections of the system. So it was about onboarding and, and kind of uh, making the system very intuitive for teams and, and thinking about like the least number of layers of indirection that we give to a newcomer to the code base and how much damage they can cause to other teams. So yeah, it's been, um, it was interesting to like hear back from customers that that model was really working out for them.
Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think it, it would have to be next because it's just been from day one, and this is quite literally from day one, a continuous source of organic exponential growth. I remember that the day that we announced it, Creed React App had just come out like weeks before. We're very certain that our focus on server rendering warranted a new player, even though Facebook was coming out with theirs. And and in many ways, it seemed going up against the company that started it all in many ways because we're using React. So we're we're very confident in that vision and uh, the market reacted to it basically immediately. So day one, we're like number one in Hacker News for quite a long time. And it was shared on on Twitter a lot and all, all those kind of things that happened with open source. But then just kind of like the the most surprising thing for me was seeing it get to production so fast because I was also part of the early days of the Node ecosystem and it had an intuition for like time to production and how much investment goes into the thing and how how much advocacy and, and teaching it takes. And I think with Next, like that time was just very remarkably short. And this is why also going back to open source, I always advocate for open source as sort of the best possible tool for finding product market fit, because it's free, because it has all these really smooth marketing channels baked in, like GitHub Explore and Stars and folks always being up for trying new things. But that time to prod was what kind of, was unlike many other things I had created in the past. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I would say that we learned really quickly how valuable backwards compatibility can be. And this is pronounced much more strongly when you're operating infrastructure. So we were able to turn that insight into a strength once we learned it because I think ever since Next 0.1 and what we sort of called at the time now V2, we've never had a single meaningful breaking change to either the framework or the platform. That pays massive dividends when it comes down to what I mentioned earlier, which is optimizing for production. So you have to navigate this space of like evolution while retaining backwards compatibility. And companies like AWS, I think, have done a fantastic job at doing this at scale, so it definitely can be done. And being new to the world of that kind of scale, when it comes down to like, you know, servicing millions of deploys per week, you learn it really fast. And and you can turn it into a strength, not just not incurring that mistake, but really deliver on innovation without any disruption. So what does the future look like for Vercel, the product, and for your team? I think the front-end world is still going to see a major revolution, especially with two technologies that I'm particularly excited about. One is edge computing, which is our ability to not just put the static parts of a website next to your customer, but to personalize and dynamicize right next to your customer. I think this can be tremendously impactful because this is a way that real world commerce already works. Like 
when you want to buy a MacBook, you can order it online or you can walk to your nearest store and you'll have the most optimized, hyper-local experience possible to where you are and where you live. This has not really happened for the web yet. We've made a trade-off between it's fast everywhere, but, but kind of static, like it's cached and whatnot, or it's super dynamic, but it only lives in US East 1 in Virginia. And this is kind of a false dichotomy, right? Like we can have the cake and eat it too. We can put the workloads everywhere in the world. We can be super fast, even when cold. And we can dynamicize without compromising availability. In other words, we can determine just in time for every visitor what to give them. And that can also be very fast and can come from a global distributed cache. So I think it's going to be a leap forward in terms of the infrastructure that we're giving developers. And obviously the way that we go about this with Next.js is always to give them a very strong local programming model, right? Like we, we bake this capabilities and features right into the framework such that if you choose to deploy to the edge, you can have this global maximum of performance and, and dynamism. One of the key components here to make all this happen is this innovations coming into React called React Server Components. And as the name implies, it makes components render and do data fetching on the server side with tremendous advantages like minimizing the amount of client-side JS that gets shipped. And it also optimizes drastically for dynamic workloads. So, so like think logged in states, user personalization, recommendations, A-B tests, feature flags. These are all things that when I say them, they're either too foreign for folks that are just developing or even getting started with the web today, or if you're a very large enterprise or if you're in in a super well-developed application and business, they sound daunting, or they're being shipped as client-side scripts that are slowing the web down. I think we have a great opportunity to demystify in many ways a lot of those technologies, right? Like Facebook actually became very prominent for their use of experimentation, right? Like everything they ship, it's not a binary thing. It's like either not shipped or shipped. It's it's a gradient of, you know, you're going to try out this new way of commenting or this new way of reacting. But when you're developing an app from scratch today on public cloud, it's very hard to even get started with a with a foundation, shall I say, a framework like that. So we're very looking forward to like making this just broadly available and I would say democratized. Let's switch to you, Guillermo. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person that you look up to and why. I really like Brett Taylor. He's the CEO of Salesforce. I think working at that scale and continuing to innovate at, at the scale that that company is, I think it's really, it's, it's something that uh, you can't take too lightly and, and uh, it's, it's an admirable position to be in. But I also like the, the fact that we're seeing leaders like this that have such strong technical backgrounds. So he was previously, I believe, CTO at Facebook. I've been following him since the days that Facebook acquired FriendFeed, one of his companies. 
I love the uh, some of the early use cases. One of the earliest use cases of React that I loved was how Quip, the company that he sold to Salesforce, was using React in combination with this multi-platform data synchronization layer. That ratio of like really knows their stuff to incredible execution on the business side of things. I think that's you know I would put Bill Joy in that category as well. Co-founder of Sign Microsystems, but also inventor of VI, the best editor in the world, and also like earliest early versions of the uh, TCP stack, the BSD edition. So I, I look for that kind of completeness, kind of how you know the best modern tennis players and all-around multi-surface tennis player. Well, we talked about a mistake earlier, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? One of the things that has really worked out well for our platform has been developing integrations into best best in class systems. So for example, our uh, big source of joy in our platform comes from our GitHub integration where you install Vercel into your GitHub repo with just a couple clicks, and then we automatically deploy every push. We literally turn your existing workflow, which is code hosting, into front-end workflow with build and hosting baked in. It's like, it becomes a Git on steroids. I think, and I regularly advise to double down on that, and I'm constantly trying to like find new ways and new integrations that are possible. And I think going back, I just try to do that as soon as physically possible. And it's hard to obviously find out what the exact time would have been, but I would love to um, always put in a strong emphasis on that. And then doing my absolute best in becoming world-class at, at your sort of place in that ecosystem, like being just super aware of how those ecosystems shape up and where integration is a superior alternative to, in some ways, reinvention or re-implementation. Last question, Guillermo. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road multiple times? I would say the boring answer is continues to be just putting the customer at the 100% foremost priority. And the twist of that in our world of dev tools making is that the customer is obfuscated because there is a customer that buys your tool and there is a customer that gets serviced by that tool. So I guess that's the kind of intellectually stimulating part of our job, I would say, is that you have two customers in mind. So I would say, if you think about one and not the other, uh, you're in trouble, most likely. So that that goes for companies that just focus on excellent DX, but they're not really moving the needle 
for that resulting UX or vice versa. You might have the pinnacle of infrastructure prowess, for example, and yet how does a developer go about programming for that or implementing that? So if you're miss if you have one and not the other, you could be in trouble. So uh, I I turned this into a repeatable piece of advice that I share with people. But you know, the caveat is always that a lot of disruptive innovation comes from ignoring the advice of experts. So there's always that caveat. <laughs> That's fantastic advice. Guillermo, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Vercel. Thanks for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.